we started a brand new series last week on, uh, on Revelation. Uh, we started a series looking at the churches, and this uh, sermon series is called, Hey Church. Um, Jesus uh, had John write down uh, some letters to the churches in Asia Minor, actually seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor, and he said, hey, this is what I want you to, uh, these are what I want you to tell the churches about how their relationship with me is going, and all that sort of stuff. And so uh, we are in week two of, uh, of that series. Now, I just feel like I would like to talk a little bit more about why I chose this. It is not because I thought to myself, oh, we're in end times and our church people need to know what the end times are looking like. Uh, that's actually not why I chose this sermon series. I, I didn't choose it because um, I wanted to uh, look at all of the events that are happening today and sit there and go, this is how it's proven in Revelation and here's how we should uh, respond to it. No, I, I didn't do that either. Um, Here's why I did it, because I think that we're to the point of going, where, where is our heart at in all of the things going on around us? Did you realize that if you were born in, uh, in 19, uh, what was it, 1910 it was, how many different things you would be going through? From the Great Depression to just ending World War I to... Uh, looking at the Spanish flu, going on into Vietnam, going on into the Korean War. I mean, it just adds on to it. And all those people at that time might have said, oh my goodness, we're at the end of this all. But really, I think that our times that we're going through really makes us kind of have to go, where is our heart? What are we, what are we really experiencing in our, in our own hearts to say, hey, is this pulling us closer to Jesus? Or is this really challenging us in our relationship with Jesus to go, ah, I need to understand him more. And today is no different in the church, in the church we're going to look at. But I want to know, what would your mindset be if you already knew what the end was going to look like anyway? Would that bring you great hope? If your faith was built on, if your faith was built on Jesus Christ, and you know the end game anyway, does it matter what you're going through in the circumstance? If your hope is already in Jesus Christ, no matter what's going on around you, does it bring you great turmoil, or does it bring you great peace and hope? Because I think sometimes what happens is, is we seem to look at what's going on around us and we want to put a label on it, right? Oh, the church is being persecuted. Or things, or we want to be able to say things like, oh, well, this is what's happening. This is the next thing that's going to happen to us. Be ready for it. Do we get lots of fear because we think to ourselves, oh great, because of how I've grown up, this is what's going to happen next? Or does it simply go, nope, doesn't phase me because I already know the end. I already know what's going to happen. I already know where I'm going in all of this. And so since we already know the end, I think it brings us great hope to live in the now and go, okay, God, how am I glorifying you in this very moment? So we had a great debate on the name of the church this week. Um, I've always grown up calling it Smyrna, right? 
But then somebody was like, well, how do you spell Myrna? And I was like, well, M-Y-R-N-A. And they're like, well, just put an S on it. And so the church today that we're looking at is Smyrna or Smyrna. It doesn't matter. Just not Smyrna. Okay? All right, because there's no S-H in there. But uh, Smyrna is uh, where, where we're headed to today. But I want to tell you a story of, uh, of a leader in uh, Smyrna in AD 155. Uh, his name is Polycarp, and uh, what's happening is, is he's in front of the pro-council in the town of Smyrna, and this is the story. So Polycarp is brought in front of the pro-council, and he's asked to... Uh, say that Caesar is Lord, and he says, no, I refuse, and so he's brought to the stadium, and uh, the proconsul urges him once again by saying this, swear, and I will set you free, reproach Christ, and Polycarp answered, 86 years I have served him, and he never did any injury to me. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The proconsul pressed him harder, and his response was, since thou art, and I love this, I'm going to read it in the good old King James stuff. Since thou art vainly urgent that I should swear by the fortune of Caesar and pretendest not to know who and what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. The proconsul then replied to him and said, I have wild beasts at hand. To these will I cast to you, except thou repent. I will cause thee to be consumed by fire, seeing that you despise wild beasts, if thou will not repent. And Polycarp responds like this, Thou threatenest me with fire, which burneth for an hour, and after a little is extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment, and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly, but why are you slowly going about doing it? Bring forward whatever you got, and let's get this done. Thus, after a little bit, Polycarp was burned at the stake. My question to you would be, if you knew the end, how would that give you hope in what you're going through right now? I think so many of us want to save our lifestyle that's going on right now and in reality that we already know the end. So why is it bothering us or why are we so consumed by the things that are going around us? Maybe we need to have a little bit of a heart shift this morning. And so I want to read with you uh, what Jesus says to the church in, uh, in Smyrna. I was going to say Smyrna in Smyrna, in uh, Revelations chapter 2. And so if you have your Bibles, why don't you flip open with me to Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And this is what it says. And I'm, just to let you know, I'm really sorry because once again, like I said, uh, I'm, I'm just going to read from here. <laughs> I accidentally have been putting ESV in here for you guys. So last week I totally read, and then I remembered I didn't switch it again this morning. So I love technology. So uh, I'll read it from here. It says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, <laughs> Smyrna, write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. 
Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Once again, Jesus is uh, kind of following the exact same little bit of... uh, uh, kind of formula how he's speaking to the churches, but this church is a little bit different, right? He actually doesn't have a condemnation for them. He has a commendation, he has an exhortation, and then he has a promise for them because this church is going through extreme persecution. This church is struggling with what's going on, but let me tell you a little bit about uh, Smyrna so uh, you can get a little bit of an idea of what's going on. And so Jesus addresses the church in Smyrna, but Smyrna is a beautiful coastal city in the area of the Aegean Sea. In fact, actually, today Smyrna still exists, okay, under a completely different name. But it is absolutely gorgeous, right off the coast, has great breezes coming in. In fact, actually, they're allies of, they were at that time allies of Rome, and they were complete rivals to the city we talked about last week, Ephesus. And I find it interesting because every single town kind of has their slogan, right? And then I thought to myself going, we're not a lot different than the town of Smyrna. We have our own, uh, we have our own slogan, right? I mean, Glasgow kind of does, right? We're the middle of nowhere, right? We pulled that on. And who's our biggest rival? Malta, right? <laughs> Uh, All right, so we're not much different nowadays. But anyway, uh, they have a claim. Smyrna has a claim. And its claim is we are the first city of real beauty and size in Asia Minor. We are the first, right? They are bolstering themselves up as the great city because we are the first. In fact, actually, there were gold, there were coins stamped that they used that said the real first city. They got a lot of pride. The next thing that uh, is going on is that the church in Smyrna was actually probably set up in Paul's third journey. So it was one of his last journeys that uh, he set up the church in Smyrna. And these people are struggling. If you are a Christian in Smyrna, you have pretty much told yourself, I'm not going to find a job anytime soon. I'm probably going to be uh, an outcast. Uh, There's not much for me. If people find out that I'm a Christian, really, in all reality, I am signing up for a life of poverty. And so the church has really actually had to pull itself together and become really strong. That Every time they meet with one another, every time they're together, they are really bolstering each other up to go, hey, keep at it. Keep going on. But I love how Jesus knows exactly what to say because as we know that the, uh, the church is actually the city in which the, we find this church, they are so claiming that, hey, we're the first city. Jesus moves right into verse 10 and he talks about, hey, all right, so now I'm going to tell you a little bit about the person who is sending you this letter. And in verse 10, Jesus says this to the church. I'm sorry, not in verse 10, in verse 8. 
which is still the same one. He says, this is the message from the one who is the first and the last, who was dead and now alive. So Jesus right away says, hey, Smyrna might have been the first, but Jesus, me, myself, has always been. And so, to you church in Smyrna, don't be, don't be fearful. Don't be worried about what's going on. Hey, I've got you covered. I was before Smyrna ever existed, which is claim to, once again, his deity. We find that in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 12, which says this. It says, listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called, I am he, I am the first and the last. And then he goes on to Isaiah 44, verse 2. Once again, he says the exact same thing to them. Thus says the Lord, who made you, who formed you from the womb, and who helped you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant. Ooh, that one is not the right verse. It's all right. Moving on. That's my fault, not theirs. Man, we have lots of fun today. But once again, Jesus is saying, I have been the first and the last. I've been here before everything else. Just like last week, we talked about the idea that Jesus is walking around the lampstand. He's among the churches. He's with the churches. Jesus is bolstering up his church by saying, I've always been here. I'm not going anywhere. I'm with you. I was the first here, and I will be the last when everybody's gone. And then he goes on to tell the church, man, I, I am also the dead who is now alive, which brings to great joy to the people in the church in Smyrna. Because he's basically telling them, I know your humanity. I know what you're going through. I've lived it as a human being. You're not alone once again. He experienced death for us. The church in Smyrna would listen to this and they would know that, yeah, this is our Savior who came to be with us as a human and died as a human. They get that. They understand that he was slandered, he was persecuted, he was rejected, he was imprisoned, he was put to death. And he was raised to life. Which is this great self-designation that Jesus is saying to them, that he is saying, hey, I am Jesus, the one who is bigger than death. You have nothing to fear as you're going through great tribulation. As you're going through crazy times, as you're being persecuted, I know and I've been there and I am bigger than death. Then he goes on in verse 9, his great commendation to them, he says, he says this in verse 9. I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blaspheme of those opposing you. They say that they are Jews, but they are not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. He knows their suffering. I love this for our church and for 
the church is today is sometimes we forget that Jesus is other than, that Jesus is somebody else. But no, Jesus knows our suffering. In fact, actually, he says something like this, really, if you think about it, is things are worse and better than they seem. Things are worse, meaning that you're going to be going through persecution, but things are better because, guess what? The end is drawing near. And this you can hope in, and this is you have your hope in me, Jesus Christ. And so, hey, people, you might be in poverty because of your faith in Christ, but you have riches stored up in heaven. Matthew 6, 20. Don't store up treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven. In fact, actually, there's a little bit of hope that goes on in this verse because James chapter 2, verse 5 says this. It says, listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? And we see in the Sermon of the, in the Mount, uh, Matthew chapter 5, where he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's bolstering them to say, it's okay. I've got you. I understand your suffering. Your treasure was never here on earth anyway. It's in heaven. And this in no way, by the way, for those of you who read Revelation, I'm going to do a quick little rabbit trail. This in no way is, is any sort of a, uh, any sort of a, uh, let's see, a prophecy on the Jewish people, okay? This is no sort of a prophecy to say that, hey, wait a second, Jewish people, you, you know, all of that. No, literally what they're saying is the Jews think that they're doing something, and guess what? They're actually doing the work of Satan. They're persecuting you guys. So don't look at this and twist this around for some of you who are reading it. No, Jesus is simply saying, hey, they're persecuting you, and literally they are doing the work for Satan. But there has been a lot of Christians that have done some really bad things that can be said the same way, correct? And so I, the rabbit trail is now over. I know you're suffering, Jesus says. And so for those of you who believe or who are looking at the world in, in which we're going through, Jesus knows what's going on. He's not outside of. He's with us. But then Christ comes into an exhortation for the church in chapter 2, verse 10, and this is what he says then. He says, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison and test you. You will suffer for 10 days, but you will remain faithful even when facing death. I will give you the crown of life. I love this part of the letter because this is a moment where Christ calls his church to be faithful unto death. Would you be faithful whatever you're going through, whether you live, remember John is a guy who is in old age and he is faithful unto death. He's waiting his days out and he's telling the church, whatever you're going through right now, would you be faithful unto death? Let's unpack this verse a little bit. The first thing that he says to them is, don't be afraid what you are about to suffer. Don't be afraid all because of the, the things that I already told you. 
that I'm the first and the last, that I was the dead who's now alive, that I know your suffering, that you're not alone. And so because of those things, don't, don't be afraid. Have hope. Have hope for what you're going through right now and have hope for the future. And then he goes on to tell them the devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. Literally, what he's saying is this, is that you will be tested by the devil. You're going to be in prison. You're going to have to go through a little bit to prove, not to, not to prove, but to be tested in your faith. We've talked about this uh, a little bit in, in past times, is how many of us throw truth away super easy? You're going to be tested. This isn't something that in which we get to say, hey, none of us are ever going to be tested. Yay, we're just going to punch our tickets to heaven. Did you think it was going to be that easy? John, John chapter 1 talks about how the world refuses Jesus because they love the darkness more than the light. We are going to be tested. Ten days, by the way, also, he goes on to say, and you will suffer for ten days. Here's the deal. That is completely symbolic of this, that it's, a, it's definite, but it's for a limited time. You're going to be tested. So can I take a quick side note to get out of Smyrna and talk about us here in America? We, as a church, are going to be slandered. As, as a church, as a, a Bible-following church, Bible-believing church, we are going to be slandered as anti-choices, anti-diversity, anti-gay, anti-inclusion, anti-intolerant. We should expect to be boycotted. We should expect to have restrictions. We should expect that we'll be socially ostracized. And eventually... We should see persecution and even imprisonment. But what should our response be? Our response should be exactly what Jesus is telling this church. Is don't be afraid. And I, I want to say this. I, I want to say please, please, as a church body as a church of believers, and I've, I've said this over and over again, would we be grounded in Scripture? Would we, would we be a church that says we want the Scriptures to be a part of our lives, a part of our daily lives, not just finding a piece of Scripture to fit what we think or what we want it to say, but that we read Scripture and, and hate sin for what sin is, that we would love grace because grace has been given to us. That we would seek mercy because mercy has been granted to us. But that we would walk humbly with God and not out of ignorant theology. But we would we be as a church to go, I want to know what the Bible says, not what I want it to say. Our goal is not to bring persecution by plastering opinions and half-truth theology onto a hurting world of unbelievers around us. That's not what we want to do. In fact, if anything, I, I think we as a church should really be taken on Micah 6.8. And 
and we would act justly and that we would love mercy and that we would walk humbly with God. We desire the gospel to be so evident in our lives that when persecution comes, we already know it's coming. We're not shocked by it. We're not going to all of a sudden get up in arms and go, well, uh, this isn't right. Jesus has already told us it's coming. And our only choice is to be grounded in a relationship with him as much as possible by reading our scripture, by spending time with him, by praying, by worshiping with one another to be able to have a foundation in which we praise God for who he is and we know the end. We don't have to be afraid because we already have confident hope in Christ Jesus. He goes on to tell the church in Smyrna, he says, hey, if you do this, if we, die, if we are faithful until the, unto death, here's what happens. Continue in verse 10. He says, but if you remain faithful even when you face death, I will give you the crown of life. This is unbelievable to me, the crown of life. There's only about, uh, there's only about uh, six other times, five other times, sorry, in which uh, the crown of something is mentioned to us. And here's where they're found. They're found in first uh, James 1.12. Uh, it's the crown of life, just as the same as this. Then you have the crown of righteousness found in 2 Timothy 4.8. The crown of glory found in 1 Peter 5.4. Or is that three? Five, four. The crown of gold in Revelation 4, 4. The crown of rejoicing in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19. And the crown of incorruption found in 1 Corinthians 9, 25. So when Jesus says, man, if you go unto death, here's what crown you should expect. What a great, great promise for us that this world might tell us, hey, would you just maybe walk away from Jesus for half-truth, but no, this is what we're going for right here. That the treasures of earth hold nothing for us. But the treasures of heaven, the kingdom of God, is what we're really living for. Because I love Philippians 1.21, it's probably one of my favorite verses as I think about where we're going and what's happening and all this different stuff. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ. So if I'm living, I'm loving Christ. But if I'm dying, this is what I've said to a couple people later. If I'm dead, I'm really sorry for all you people that have to live here. I'm already in heaven. I've even joked this um, one time or another. If you, if you have COVID, come, come to my office. Not that I want it, and not that I want to share it with any of you. But I already have a feeling, and I know most of you do too, that this isn't our home. This isn't what we're living for. We're living for the kingdom of God and the crowns that are offered 
And so when persecution comes, when other things around us are happening, I'm not going to be worried and fearful. I know where my Savior lives. And I know what our Savior has called us to. And so if that's the case, then for me to live as Christ, and I'm going to do whatever I can to have the most deepest relationship with the creator and sustainer of my life, which is Jesus Christ. That I have a relationship with him, and we're going to talk about that into the future here in a little bit. When we get into the church of Laodicea and all of that sort of stuff, and we'll unpack that a little bit more later, but I love this concept. I'm going to live for Christ while I'm here, but if I'm dying, man, it's going to be all gain because of all of the riches. I, I, I don't know if I can, like, give more hope for you than that. And so Jesus moves into the very last kind of part of his promise in his formula for this. When It's found in verse 11 when he says, Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. This is what he's saying. He's saying to those of us that you have nothing to fear in death. Though we may die, you will not be worried. You shouldn't be worried at all. Because Jesus has already conquered death. That is, our, that is our hope, that is our foundation of belief. That Jesus promises us life. So we don't have to fear death. I want to leave you with one last piece of scripture, and it's found in Matthew 16, 25. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. And as I look at this verse with you, I want you to think about it a little bit as we sing our last song together. Jesus comes and he says to the people that are listening to him, he says, for whoever would choose to save his life will lose it. If we do everything we can just to continue to keep living, to save our life here on earth, we're we're going to end up losing it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, Jesus Christ's sake, will find it. That is where our true joy comes from. It is where our true hope comes from, that our life is based on Jesus Christ, that our, that our lives are for Jesus and not for our own self-preservation but that our lives would be spent loving Jesus. Because in all reality, we will not be able to face end times if we don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's going to be worrisome. It's going to consume all of our thoughts. It's going to spend, we're going to spend most of our time fighting it. And it will eventually just take us from our relationship with Christ. And so my question as I leave with you today is, how is 
your relationship with Christ? Are you steeped in God's word every day or are you scrolling through the news and hoping that the Bible says something about it? Or do you simply just read the Bible and go and watch the news and go, I knew this was happening. I knew it would happen. It's okay. I don't have to worry. Our relationship with Christ is based on the fact that you see all of us have sinned. That if unforgiven, the sin separates us from God for eternity. But God so loved the world that he gave his son so that anyone who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I love this, that Jesus, God in the flesh, he came as one of us. He modeled a perfect life for all of us. He died because of us and he rose victorious. He beat death so that any one of us in this room, any one of us at all, by faith in him could be forgiven of our sins. We could be given a new life today, not tomorrow, but today, and our lives would be given power to live for him and honor him every single day of the rest of our lives. And that one day, we will spend eternity with him. That's the gospel. That's our hope. Notice it doesn't say that we'll endure, we will endure, and if we endure enough pain, then maybe God will let us in. No. It's faith in Jesus Christ alone. He does that for us. And so if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you can do that today. I want you to spend some time in this last song that we're going to sing together and just thinking, God, where have I been placing my hope this last week? Where have I been really just, just stewing and not understanding that I already knew what the end time was going to be? I'm not even saying we're in the end times. I'm just saying that where is our heart in the world that we live right now? Because we can face tomorrow because, ha, there's a hymn, because he lives. And so let's sing this last song. And I, I want you to spend some time with God and just talk to him. And then I'll come and close and uh, pray for us.